This is an ABC podcast. Good afternoon, Nikolai Bailharts with you for the Country Hour. Today, farmers have been put on alert with the discovery of Russian wheat aphid at a number of sites in the Mallee. The pest, which only came to Australia two years ago, had so far been pretty quiet and pretty absent after a hot and dry summer, but it has now emerged again. So we'll find out what you need to know to try and control it, particularly if you are in the broadacre game. And speaking of cropping, we'll also hear today from a Queensland hay producer who's finding it impossible to keep up with demand from drought-stricken farmers. People on a list waiting to get their hay sort of thing and other people ringing up wanting to go on the list and other people that ring up and new customers and I just say, oh, sorry, I can't help you for months. So, And some of those customers are indeed coming from Victoria. So hay now making its way from far north Queensland all the way down to Victoria. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. To start today, though, pig producers are at breaking point, according to one Victorian farmer, and as tariff wars are continuing between both the US, China and Mexico, Australian pork prices are expected to drop further. Now, if those projections are right, the industry could see a further 15% drop next year in what's an already a slumped market. Stanhope pig producer John Burke says many are now at their wits' end. Well, we're on our knees now, Sheree, so... If it dropped any lower and, and, and their grain prices go higher, it only means one thing, we're going to go bankrupt faster than we already are. This crisis in the industry has been going on for over 12 months, so it just doesn't happen overnight. What's happened overnight is grain prices have, have jumped up 100 plus dollars a tonne, which is really putting extreme pressure on, far, on the pork industry. And, and it'll happen to the chicken industry as well. We've gone from $3.80 a kilo to $2.20. You don't have to be that good at maths to work out what the problem is. And it could go lower because the US price in Australia is probably what they buy it for over there is probably around the $1.80 mark, especially with with the dollar and all that. So that'll make a huge difference. You talk about the the cost of production. What you're getting for your pork is less than the cost of production. For you, how much are you losing a month? We're, we're losing over into the tens of thousands a month. So it's getting really serious. What that means is, is that goes on for a year. You know, it's a quarter of a million bucks. That's what it means. And what you've got to look at the big picture is that it, it's still fairly expensive in the in the butcher shops and in the supermarkets. And see, the, the supermarkets have got long-term contracts with their suppliers, which is, is a great thing for them. But any, any oversupply is dumped back on the local market, which affects, affects the non-supermarket trade, which is fairly huge. So at the moment, we've got about a 16% production increase in Western Australia and they can't sell their their product. So there's 2,000 pigs coming to Victoria each week at the minute, boxed for $1.90 a kilo, which means they're getting roughly between somewhere between 80 and $1.10 a kilo at the farm gate. And if you, you look at the cost of your feed cost of around $4.50, $4.60, that's unsustainable. So what view do you have, what 
plan do you have in place if it just continues on? Well, the industry's got to have a, a correction and fairly quickly. Because we can't export and we've got an oversupply of pork, if we don't cut our sour numbers back, we'll all perish. Until we can bring supply and the demand closer, like our demand's been going up around 35 to 4% a year. So over the good times, all the farms have have spent reinvested in their shedding and, and, and got better production and and there's been a, a fair few that have put extra sows on and like we've got we've got to get over ten thousand sows out of the system to bring the equilibrium back into the into the industry. And until that happens, we're gonna the industry's gonna bleed and bleed very, very harshly. Are you looking to destock or remove some of, of uh, your animals out of the system there? Sell my pigs to my supplier because I haven't. We haven't put on any extra numbers. What's happening is now that the extra numbers that have come on the market, the uncontracted pigs, are forcing out my supplier to have to drop his price to compete with that. Because you can understand the, the end user, the butcher that sells to the consumer, wants to make money, and and if he's got an opportunity to make money, he will. So thousands of dollars, losing thousands of dollars each month for you. How are you holding up with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm coping all right. I, um, I've seen it before and it, it hurts. And, and my main priority is my staff. I've got eight staff at my place and they they all need to be paid. They've all got commitments. It, it causes you um, a, a real lot of stress uh, emotionally um, because you have to keep your production at 110% because if you drop your production and suddenly the, the wheels start turning back, you've got nothing to sell and so you're in a world of despair. Uh, so if you think about it this way, if, if I worked for a company or say I worked for the government, I could go to work, I could go to the doctor and I could get a certificate to say that I've got, um, I'm under severe stress. I'll get it, I'll still get paid, uh, full pay, and I'll be able to get myself better. But what a farmer can't do that. He can't walk off his farm. The only only way he gets off his farm is, is in the cemetery. That's where he'll end up. So you really have to think about what, the government rules when they make these free trade agreements, and they and they make um, they want you to be more pro- productive, and, and it forces you to invest more and more in your business. But at the end of the day, no one cares. No one cares about farming because the supermarkets never run out, and the and their household tap water. There's always water coming out of their taps, and. and I'm not picking on the consumer, but they're too far removed from what actually goes into growing food and the end user. There's no connection. There's only negativity that um, farmers are unethical because they mass-produce stuff. And, and you have to mass-produce product to stay in business. So people should think about that before they throw stones at farmers. So you, you said earlier around 10,000 sows need to be taken out of the industry 
to help during these tough times. When you say take them out, does that that mean some farmers will have to make the hard decision of shooting their stock? No, they'll have to to be culled. The last thing we want to do is have to shoot our stock, like you have to do with starving sheep and cattle. But it's getting that way now that you can't sell sows because there's too many. But what I'm talking about, the 10,000 sows that need to come out of the industry should come, need to come from the, the producers that doubled up without any, without any sales. They just thought it'll double up and people, everyone, everything will stay the same. But our industry is limited because we cannot export and we can't use any of our pork in, in the small goods trade. This is not the first time I've seen this type of thing happen, but I haven't seen it as as atrocious as it is now it's like we've been abandoned because um you, you talk talk to people you talk to government um agencies and that sort of thing and they haven't got any solutions that's stanhope pig producer john burke speaking with our reporter sharif von hirschner the country hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It is 14 minutes past 12. My name's Nikolai Bailharts. Well, you might remember that uh, last month, last month, I should say, a landmark court case on horticultural peace rates was handed down. It made a number of rulings about the calculation of peace rates. That's one of the ways that uh, some pickers get paid and whether more than 400 mushroom pickers were able to earn the minimum wage when it comes to those peace rates. Well, for the first time, it also examined whether a farmer was responsible for the underpayment of staff, which were employed via a labour hire firm. The National Farmers Federation used its Australian Fighting Fund to be an intervener on the case, claimed the outcome of it was a success, but others say that the rulings have just created further confusion. Emma Field reports. In July, Justice Rangai handed down his findings in a federal court case brought by the Fair Work Ombudsman against a Queensland farm, Marlin Mushrooms, its owner Troy Marland, and its labour hire firm HRS Country. HRS Country's director and sole shareholder, Tao Hugh, pleaded guilty to breaching the Fair Work Act and underpaying 406 workers by $650,000 over eight months. The case against Marlin Mushrooms was dismissed. The Victorian Farmers Federation Horticulture spokesman Emma Germano says there were some clear outcomes on peace rates and the use of labour hire firms from the case but it also raised further questions. We've got some legislation called the Fair Work Act that is completely grey and very confusing and it's interesting that we got a judge to have a look at that and his report alludes to all of the grey area and we're expecting growers to be able to do this stuff themselves in their own businesses. It's exceedingly complicated um, and I think the justice's decision really reflects that. So one of the things that was made clear was that the labour hire company, which was used in this case, HRS Country, they um, were found to have set a peace rate which was adequate at the time, but then when the pickers were not able to pick a a certain amount, they then were not able to earn um, the minimum wage under the award. So therefore that peace rate then became inadequate. So do you think that has some implications for horticulture farmers who are using the peace rate? Definitely. And I've got to be really clear that it's about enabling uh, the worker to earn not just the just the award, but also the extra 15% that they're agreeing to when they go on peace rates. The idea is we're giving employees the opportunity to choose that if they're 
productive that they can be paid above and over the amount of the minimum wage. So it's really interesting that there's that interpretation um, that's part of it because it says that it merely has to enable the worker to do that. It doesn't guarantee their minimum wage. The only thing that guarantees the minimum wage is the piece uh, rate calculator and making sure that that piece rate calculator is correct to enable them to earn that wage. But again, the, the Justice um, has really pointed out that what we're doing is predictive. And one of the other implications that came out of the decision was that prediction only needs to be made once over the duration of a period of time where somebody's going to be working under a contract. So if you're working for three months, it should be predictive of what that three months looks like. Justice Rangai has really pointed out that it's something that's predictive, and I think that's um, in favour of industry. Ms Germano says the case also made an interesting observation about how long it takes to become a competent picker and the implications for a backpacker workforce. And it was really quite clear that it was saying anybody who hasn't worked for three months yet might not be seen as an average competent worker that's basically every single backpacker because most of them will only do their 88 days anyway. So it's basically said that as a backpacker, you're probably not going to be proficient for the entire time until you get your qualify for your second working holiday visa. That, that's potentially opening up a can of worms. Isn't there some requirement for industry to make sure the people working in the industry are getting a fair wage? A hundred percent. I really hope that industry don't look at this and think about it in regards to minimum compliance and what you can get away with. We really need to be thinking about best practice. One of the other things that comes out of the decision is that if you've had a non-productive workforce there, that it's going to affect your piece rate moving forward. So it's still really vitally important that we don't see this as, well, it doesn't matter if we've got slow pickers or we don't need to be asking government to give us the availability of an efficient and productive workforce because that's going to affect your piece rate over time. So the more more efficient and productive the workforce is, the better for everybody, both the workers and the employers. So this it shouldn't be seen as a, um, a way to say, great, we, we can set low pace rates and we'll be able to get away with it in court. That's not what the decision says, but it definitely we need to be focused on best practice. And moving beyond compliance, we actually, actually have to think about what our consumers want and making sure that we are clean, green and ethical. We want to be an industry that's paying people well and that we're explaining to consumers why they should uh, value Australian products. The National Union of Workers National President Katerina Sanani says the court ruling was a mixed result for workers. gives some clarity on piecework agreements and the fact that they shouldn't be below the minimum award, but also it says employers actually have an obligation to make sure workers are being paid the minimum throughout the entire season, not just at the beginning. I think that the other area which is disappointing is that once again the host employer has not been held to account in relation to those underpayments. So what happens a lot, and we see it all the time, is that growers use contractors, dodgy contractors and labour agencies, and they hide behind them. And the supermarkets then hide behind the growers, and no one um, takes responsibility for what workers are being paid. And I think that this case is disappointing in that it, it has failed once again to give workers the justice they deserve by actually putting into account the fact that they've been underpaid the whole time that they were working. So I think there are inadequacies with the law in relation to this. And the rules need to change because you can't take responsibility for the quality of your product and the picking of the product and the workers working on your farm and yet say, I have no responsibility for how they're paid. Emma Germano again. There is still definitely an attitude in a lot of growers' cases where they believe that using a, a labour hire contractor gives them some kind of arm's length. There is nothing valuable about 
farmers and the horticulture industry being painted as a, an industry that's not ethical, that it wants to rip off its staff. That's not OK. That's VFF Horticultural Group President Emma Germano and Mubu Northgrower ending Emma Field's report. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It's 20 past 12. Well, the past year's been a pretty turbulent time for international grain markets. We've seen increased tariffs slapped on some Australian crops heading to India. And, of course, we've been talking about it, those retaliatory tariffs between the US and China. But through all of this, the Black Sea region in and around Russia continues its rise as one of the world's major exporters of grain. And with Australian grain exports likely to plummet after this year's drought... The Black Sea is firming up its position as a reliable and cheap provider of grain to Asian markets. Jess Davis reports. The Black Sea region encompasses Russia, the Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Grain exports from this part of the world have increased from less than 10% in the 2000s to 25% today. Dr Rory Deverell is a commodity risk manager who specialises in the Black Sea market. They've been the core centrepiece of where production of wheat has grown the fastest and they've contributed the most to rising wheat supply in the world. He says countries like the Ukraine and Russia have been investing heavily in the agricultural sector. So you've got a combination of better yields and a bigger area that's man-made driven and then also Mother Nature stepped in as well that the winters are less harsh and the summers are, are wetter and cooler as well. At least that's been the trend for the last five years. So it's a combination of factors as to why Russia has gone from an importer decades ago to now being the largest exporter of wheat in the world. Mr Deverell says as the Black Sea's grain exports into Asia grow, Australia's hold on the market could be at risk. The tricky part this year uh, for Australia is it's really unfortunate that your crop is not, crop conditions are not looking so great because potentially that opens the door for Russia to get into the markets that have historically been in a, inaccessible to them. You know, when you do have the crop, when the cycle comes back around and you're back to a 30 million tonne crop, well, you'll, you'll, you'll still have that competitive advantage, but, you know, relationships would have been created. It will have a longer-term impact on on selling into that market. CEO of Grain Growers Australia is Michael Southman. What we suffer from is inconsistency in supply and that's just a function of our environment, of our climate. Uh, and as a result, the Black Sea wheat has been able to um, find niches into markets um, when we maybe haven't been able to supply. But the big thing with the Black Sea wheat is that it's much cheaper. They can produce it, produce it much cheaper. Um, freight's still relatively cheap. So it's going into markets that it traditionally hasn't gone into um, 10 years ago. So as a result, um, we have the challenge now that um, we still need to somehow make sure that Australian wheat um, is going to be competitive in those markets. We can't compete on price, so we have to look at that value proposition. And of course, that comes back to quality and service. But President of the Ukrainian Grain Association, Nikolai Gorbachev, says there's room in the market for everyone. Oh, I do not believe that uh, we are such big competitors. I am sure that the population will increase and uh, very soon we will see 9 billion people population uh, and uh, all these people will need food. That's why both of us, we can increase the production and we will find new markets. 
But he also says there's potential for grain production from the region to grow. But we still be far away from the West uh, crop, for example. We continue to produce about uh, four tonnes per hectare wheat compared to eight tonnes in France, for example. Or we produce uh, six tonnes per hectare corn on average. For example, in USA, this number is 11 tonnes per hectare. That's why I'm sure we still have big potential. It's not just challenges from the Black Sea that has Australian grain producers worried. Over the last year, India has slapped tariff after tariff on Australian chickpeas, wheat and lentil imports. The amount of chickpeas planted in Australia this year is forecast to fall by over 50% on last year's crop. Australia's Trade Minister Stephen Chobo says the government is in negotiations with the Indian government to lift the tariffs. At the Australian Grains Conference this week, farmer Peter Wilson from the Darling Downs in Queensland asked the minister if he would be leveraging coal exports as a negotiating tactic. You know, sometimes you've got to get the attention of uh, the person you're trying to negotiate with and in a, in a cheeky way, maybe an export tax on coal would be, uh, wouldn't be a bad idea. It would certainly get their attention, I suspect. But Mr Chobo laughed off the suggestion. Uh, look, you know, trade negotiations are always a little bit of carrot and stick. Uh, and so you've just got to work out whether you need the carrot or whether you need the stick. Probably not the stick at this point. <laughs> well, look, it's early days, so um, so we, we just keep working our way through. India's a, India's a tough India's a tough country to have discussions with. They're um, they're not among the vanguard, so to speak, when it comes to uh, uh, open and competitive markets. Um, and you know you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with that political reality, you've got to deal with that commercial reality and you've got to work out how to extract the best outcome for Australia. Um, and the best outcome for Australia is achieved when you can provide a win-win outcome. A win for them, a win for us uh, and that's what trade deals are all about. Indian economist Guruswami Chadrashikar says India has every right to impose the tariffs. The government needs to support the growers, therefore it needs to, it needs to arrest uh, excessive imports. And the only way to arrest excessive import is to impose a tariff. He says the tariffs have already had a positive impact for India's pulse growers. As a result, domestic prices have now begun to rise. Domestic prices of chickpea in the last three months have gone up by 20%, which brings huge relief to growers in India. But farmer Peter Wilson says the impact is more complicated. We can talk about it from an Australian impact, for sure. But this is having an impact on the structure of supply and demand inside India. The, these sorts of, uh, there's lots of consequential outcomes from this sort of policy, the, the changes in the policy. We're actually, you know, reduced the liquidity in the business. So in fact, I don't believe the Indian farmer is any better off today than he was 12 months ago. Mr Chandrashikar says Australia needs to treat India with more respect as a trading partner. If you want to succeed in India, uh, and if you want to supply and do trade with India, you should actually strike partnership with India. Uh, because uh, I believe Australia has all that India needs and India wants. He says India knows its own power as the fastest growing economy in the world. You, you cannot nudge me, you cannot push me. We know our power, we know our import power. And then therefore, therefore, it is in Australia's interest. If, if, if Australia wants to have greater engagement with, it, with India, Australia must respect India's size and India's potential. Uh, and and if, if Australia believes 
that, oh, India is a market that we can capture any time, and, uh, and therefore uh, India must do all that Australia demands, I think that's not going to work. After all, India is your customer in some way. You're a supplier and India is a customer. And customer is a king. We need to treat customer like a king. But do you treat in the, your customer like a king? I don't know. You need to ask yourself. Mm, some interesting thoughts there. That's Guruswami Chandrashikar, an Indian economist, ending that report from Jess Davis. Uh, now, we have been talking this lunchtime about low pork prices. Uh, Jeff sent a text through on the text line 0467 842 722 is the text number if you would like to get in touch. Uh, Jeff says, if our pork farmers are going under, why are we seeing so much imported pork in our supermarkets and butcher shops? What happened to jobs and growth? Very interesting question. Yeah, a lot of uh, pork in supermarkets is certainly imported, uh, but a lot of the fresh stuff is not. 0467 842 722 is the text number if you would like to get in touch. It's at 29 past 12 here on The Country Hour. That means it's time to get the latest in local news headlines now with Adrian Reardon. Afternoon, Adrian. Good afternoon, Nikolai. Police believe a 43-year-old woman who died after being hit by a car in Victoria's northwest overnight may have been struck by up to three vehicles. The incident happened on the intersection of San Matteo Avenue and Kalimna Drive in Mildura shortly before 11 o'clock last night. Paramedics and the CFA treated the woman, but she died at the scene. Police say the driver of one of the vehicles, a Mildura woman, left the scene but returned shortly after. Gippsland Water is confident the drinking water in Sale and Warwick is safe, despite concerns about contamination from firefighting chemicals. A new Defence Department report has identified increased human health risks from PFAS contamination around the East Sale RAAF base near Sale. It's also extended a warning against eating animals and fish from the Hart Morass to include the Lower Latrobe River. Victorian opposition leader Matthew Guy has promised a 59-minute service from Ballarat Station to Southern Cross within 18 months, if elected in November. The Liberal Party will draft a policy over the next three weeks involving duplication, track upgrades and timetable changes. The Andrews government has also committed an under-an-hour service from Ballarat to Melbourne, not until 2030. And a pre-feasibility study on staging the 2030 Commonwealth Games in regional Victoria will be completed by the end of the year. It's part of regional Victoria's bid to stage events in the Greater Shepparton region, Wodonga, Bendigo, Ballarat, Warrnambool and Traugan. The Victorian government and 14 regional Victorian councils have contributed to funding the study after 15 months of lobbying. For more information on the stories we're following, you can head to our website, abc.net.au slash news. Thank you so much. Adrian Reardon there with local news headlines. Now let's head off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, Peter Newham is on duty this afternoon. Hi, Peter. Good afternoon, Nikolai. Uh, the news that will be welcome to many is that there is a bit of movement on the radar. There's a bit of rain going through at the moment. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's um, just gradually been spreading eastwards across the state um, up till 9am um, most of the rain was um, in southern parts of the Wimmera in the southwest. So we, we had um, nine millimetres at Apsley, eight at Eden Hope, seven at Casterton and Balmoral, six at Kenangulk. So that sort of area in that um, northern, northern western district and, and southern parts of the Wimmera was the the main area. And since then, it's it has spread further east. Um, since 9am, so in the last three and a half hours, we're up to 12 millimetres in the Grampians, um, nine at Stall. Uh, there's sort of some four, five, six millimetre 
totals just in the last few hours across much of the Wimmera. So Warwick, Nabil, Longrenong, uh, Horsham have all had around that mount. So um, it's a start and, and now the rain um, has developed over much of northern Victoria. It's sort of it's almost reached um, sort of Yarrawonga while it's mostly... Well, it's just near Ballarat and just starting to sort of extend southeastwards near Seymour. So it's sort of spreading from the northwest. Um, and I think we'll just see further rain at times across, well, initially central and western parts, but spreading to the to the far east during the afternoon. And I think the rainfall totals will end up with 5 to 10 millimetres in most areas. Um, but it looks like there could be some higher totals of sort of 10 to 20 in... Um, some parts of the Wimmera, given they're already sort of at five to ten, ten already, um, and about along the ranges, along the divide, and up in the alpine areas, I think they might get um, sort of twenty or maybe even thirty millimetres by midnight tonight. Um, it doesn't look like there'll be much in the Melbourne area, and in Gippsland, central and eastern parts will probably just get a sprinkle. So um, that area obviously has been pretty dry for a year or so now, um, and yeah, it doesn't look like much of this rain will get into Gippsland due to those fresh northlies. Um, We've also got a severe weather warning out for elevated areas, so once again, quite gusty northerly winds um, up on the uh, higher in higher areas. But as this rain band moves through um, with the front, uh, we'll see the the winds ease a bit, um, and then the showers are also likely to mostly clear um, from the west later today and overnight. So by by sunrise tomorrow there'll just be some isolated showers left about the eastern ranges and across the southwest. Uh, as far as temperatures go today, maximum temperatures, it's it's quite a contrast from Gippsland to the to the west of the state because we're, we're already up around 19 degrees at both Bensdale and Sale and might sneak a little bit higher but uh, it's struggled to get much above sort of 9 or 10 degrees over the west because of the, the rain that's set in. So, um, yeah, much... Well, more pleasant outside conditions for Gippsland and, and the east today. Uh, so tomorrow, as I said, isolated showers should have contracted to the ranges in the southwest. It'll be a coolish start in areas that are clear of that rain and cloud, so minimums of sort of one, two or three degrees um, around Bendigo, Shepparton, Echuca, Seymour, Wangaratta, Ballarat, um, more sort of three to seven degrees elsewhere. And then I think the... Sh the showers will persist in the southwest coast, but there won't be much anywhere else. So a partly cloudy day with moderate to fresh northwesterly winds and maximums in the mid to high teens. Sunday will be similar. There won't be much rain around until later in the day when we'll see showers develop from the west. And it looks like Monday will be another showery day, similar to today in that the higher totals will be near the ranges and in the southwest, but, but showers possible just about everywhere on Monday and it'll be quite a cold air mass coming across the state on, on Monday so we'll likely to see some isolated thunderstorms and small hail and, and snow getting down to around 800 metres by the end of Monday. Um, then the showers become more isolated Tuesday or Wednesday next week. So in summary, Nikolai, it's sort of that, fa that fairly windy weather continues for another few days and just these cold fronts coming through every two or three days, which are not a... No single front is dropping large rainfall amounts, but it's mm. just gradually accumulating. And so just pushing out to the end of the, the seven-day forecast, once we get to kind of uh, Wednesday, Thursday next week, how are things looking there? Yeah, so by Wednesday, I think most of the shower activity will just be about the ranges in the southwest and, and rainfall totals won't be that significant. Thursday, it looks like clearing will be in between fronts again, so 
we'll be back to a day of northwesterlies and basically dry, partly cloudy. And it looks like another front will move through probably on Friday at this stage, again bringing showers. Um, probably, yeah, you know, again another five to ten millimetres across the state, but uncertainty, of course, this far out. Mm. So we. Uh, mixed among, amongst all these um, sort of windy, showery days, we're getting the occasional day where it's the winds are lighter and it's a bit more pleasant. Um, so yeah, real, all in all, I guess the weekend's you know pleasant enough to be outside. Um, but yeah, today and Monday are the, the particularly showery ones. Um, except in East, uh, central and East Gippsland, that just continues to miss out because the winds are staying northwesterly and mm. and, and the dividing range tends to really block block the, the showers and rain through there as long as we're in a northwesterly flow, which we just seem to be staying in for day after day. Okay, thank you very much, Peter. Okay, Sydney Clive. Peter Newham, Senior Forecaster on duty at the Bureau. And yeah, geez, no respite for uh, Central and East Gippsland, is there? Uh, a few more of your texts through. Stephen from Curl has had uh, two mils so far in the northwest of the state. Thanks for that, Steve. And another very good question, uh, saying why is it that I bought a pork, a pork roast in Mildura for $12 a kilo, but the farmer's only getting $2 a kilo? Seem like there are a few middlemen in there, doesn't it? 0467 842 722 is the text number if you'd like to get in touch. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It is 22 minutes to one. My name is Nikolai Bailharts. Well, farmers have been put on alert with the discovery of Russian wheat aphid at a number of different sites in the Mallee. Now, you'll remember that this destructive pest only really came to Australia two years ago, but it had largely been absent this season so far because of a hot and dry summer cutting back numbers. But now Birchip Cropping Group researcher Claire Brown says it has emerged again and farmers who haven't treated their seed need to be vigilant. There's been a Russian wheat aphid detected, particularly in the northern Mallee, more so the northeastern, towards regions around Tullibuck, Menangatang and that sort of area, heading towards Reynolds. They've only been detected at this stage in those cereal paddocks where there was no seed treatments applied. And do you know how common it was for farmers to treat their seed? Uh, I would say it was very common for the majority of farmers to treat their seed. We also had quite a low level of a green bridge carryover um, this summer, largely due to the dry summer. So we didn't start with a high pressure scenario at the start of the year, which was conducive to Russian aphids. And if growers are concerned that they may have Russian wheat aphid in their crops and they want to head out and have a look, what sorts of things should they be looking for? They should be looking down at the base of the leaves. They might be uh, curled, uncurl them and look um, down in there. There'll also be some whitish or pinkish um, streaks running long ways along the leaves if they've got them. And uh, if they do have them, there are some rules of thumb or thresholds that they can use uh, to give them a rough idea of whether they need to be spraying their crops? The rough uh, rule of thumb is so post-tillering stage, if there's 10% of tillers that are showing symptoms and aphids, then that's possibly a situation that would warrant some control. And there is a, a good chemical control measure available? There is a couple of different options available. Um, my suggestion would be that growers talk with their local agronomists first because keeping in mind there will be a whole lot of beneficials taken out depending on which product you choose. So try and select something that's a bit softer on those beneficials at this stage. 
if the Russian wheat aphid is above those thresholds, and maybe if it's significantly above, what sorts of damage can it cause to the crop? It can cause significant levels of damage if they get going. At this stage, uh, I'm not sure if the Russian wheat aphids are on the wing at the moment. Once that does happen, perhaps as the weather warms up a bit, then they can move around. We're sort of only in the early days. We could only be in Australia for the last two to three seasons of knowing exactly the level of damage. But I have heard of some situations where it can be up to 50% yield loss. And how does the pest actually cause damage to the crop? Um, well, unfortunately, the Russian wheat aphid actually inject a toxin into the plant, which then consequently causes the retardation of the plant growth. This is a little bit different to some other aphids, which are actually in a, a virus, a vector. Are they spreading a virus? The Russian wheat aphid uh, don't do that. They more move around from plant to plant, injecting the toxin. And there are some trials being run this season to learn more about Russian wheat aphid? So SARDI, the South Australian Research and Development Institution, in conjunction with GRDC, are doing a large number of trials investigating the regional risks and thresholds for Russian wheat aphid. In some of the trials, for example the one at Birchett, some plots have been left untreated uh, with the seed it's sowing and then had Russian wheat aphids spread onto those plots so we can really get a good idea on the differences in seed treatment. Uh, with those trials, uh, is there any concern about actually introducing Russian wheat aphid into areas where it mightn't already be present and then potentially spreading onto other crops? Yes, Angus. At the start of the year when I set up this trial, I was extremely worried about uh, the thought of spreading Russian wheat aphid into the local Birchett farmer's paddock. However, I was assured by uh, Dr Martin Van Helden, who leads up the project at Sardi in Adelaide, that provided all other uh, crops around had seed treatment, they wouldn't spread into those. So, so far, uh, fingers crossed, now at the 2nd of August, I haven't seen any in the surrounding crop, which is good news. That's Birchip Cropping Group researcher Claire Brown speaking with Angus Verley. Now, of course, the Russian wheat aphid made big headlines when it was first found in Australia, but how was it actually confirmed that it was here? After all, no-one had seen it before. Well, that work is largely done at the Agri-Bio Centre in Bandura in Melbourne. Simone Warner is Director for Microbial Science and Pests and Diseases at Agri-Bio. She says it can be a challenge trying to diagnose something new and previously unseen locally. It's all about pests and diseases as our major focus. We do do other things on the side, but the core of the group do that, and we do that through um, both um, animals and plants and insects and weeds and how that affects um, farmers out in the out in rural areas, both, I mean, mainly in Victoria, obviously, because we're a Victorian government department, but obviously pests and diseases know no boundaries, and so that obviously safeguards across Australia as well. And so is it mostly people bringing things to you where you'll receive a sample and someone will say, oh, something looks a bit weird here, can you sort it out for me? So there's two components to our business. We run um, the diagnostic services for both the animal health system and plant health system in Victoria, and then we also do complementary research and development, which we call R&D, um, that then we use those interchangeably and, and both benefit from each other. And so whilst we run a diagnostic service that um, the public can submit samples to us directly, but also we get many, many samples from our Victorian Government Department, which has its own network out there. Um, that's one part of it. But then on the other hand, the R&D component of our business 
gives us more capability and we learn how to uh, how to introduce more science and the latest technologies into our business here and then we where they're applicable we, we use them in diagnostics mm. so they go hand in hand together and they really help us keep our skills up high and have the latest tests and uh, all the latest technologies that we can use to more quickly identify pests and diseases which then of course when you translate that into the field means that they can respond a, a lot faster because i imagine one of the challenges uh, potentially would be you get a lot of samples where you go, okay, well, we've seen that before, we know this is X, we know this is Y, but then every once in a while you get a Z yes. and you think, oh, okay, we haven't seen that before. So is that where the R&D kind of factors in? Absolutely. So the R&D allows us to broaden um, your scope so you can look at either more insects or more bacteria, etc., that all contribute to disease and loss of production. Um, there are a lot of tests that are nationally endorsed tests or internationally endorsed protocols, we call them, uh, which, are the, which are really good to use because they help support the trade aspect as well. So if you're using a nationally endorsed test and you say this is definitely a positive or definitely a negative, there's more weight behind that. The R&D helps us to add more tests into the national diagnostic protocols or broaden the diseases covered by those tests. So that's we've done that for, for many different things here and fire blight, which is um, one of the high-profile diseases in the plant industries, that's one example of that where by being involved in the science on an R&D capacity for many years um, we've contributed to producing a national diagnostic protocol for that disease and then that's used not only by our diagnostic service but um, others around Australia as well. And I gather Russian wheat aphid played a, a well, the, 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 uh, I guess the determination of what Russian wheat aphid was, there was a determination of that here? That's right and not just here when we say here we're at AgriBio yeah. today and obviously this is the main campus that we have for running all our diagnostics and the bigger portfolio of our R&D in biosecurity. But we also have staff out in the regions and so there's um, research and development programs out in Horsham in this case that we were able to use um, the skills that they have in our team out there to complement our work on the Russian wheat aphid um, when that came into Australia. And so that, that was a combination of our Horsham staff working with the staff here uh, at AgriBio and together, using all our diagnostic skills and the R&D we had placed out in Horsham, together that was able to um, nail that really quickly. So this is probably a very broad question, but how do you actually do that? How do you eliminate all everything else and say, OK, well, we're pretty sure, in fact, we know this is Russian wheat aphid or whatever the example is? So there's a combination. What you try and do is have more than one test under your belt when you want to, uh, when you want to diagnose any high-profile disease. Um, so what we do is have tests that you know you've, you've used for many years or have been developed, as I said before, they're, nationally, uh, they're national diagnostic protocols, and so you have a lot of confidence because they've undergone lots of validation. And so you know how many false positives or false negatives to expect with different tests. And so part of the skill is having more than one so that, you know, just in case something is not straightforward on one test, you've got others to back it up. In the case of uh, Russian wheat aphid and other insect pests, you, obviously morphological is one of the gold standards that you've used over many, many years. So you look at it under a microscope or in the laboratory and you can see certain features that you know uh, over time that distinguish it from a, a different pest. But then you bring in the newer age tests as well, or the molecular tests, things like that, that look at the DNA 
profile of, of those organisms and then you use that and, and you, you want them to match, mm. which they usually do, obviously, but it's, it's just having that broad skill set that you can apply to any disease problem that we have uh, come up. So we get, obviously, a wide range all the time coming up and it's critically important, especially from a trade perspective, to really know that when you say something is that, <laughs> that it really is that and you don't want any cross-reactions or false, you know, results in there. So that's part of our skill set that we, you know, try and maintain, obviously, and that we've, we're confident when we put out a result then that we're bringing all of that knowledge behind it and that that would give, be exactly the right answer. I imagine one of the, the pressures you must face is time because obviously when you hear something like, oh, Russian wheat aphid mm-hmm. is here, everybody wants an answer of, is this definitely it and yep. what do we do? That, that must be difficult. It's difficult, but again, uh, the same answer as before about the broad range of tests and broad range of skills and expertise within the group. And so what you do is have some tests that give very quick results and other tests that might need to back that result up that might take a little bit longer. But speed is the essence in disease control. And so what we do is focus all our business on what's the quickest test results we can give, but with high confidence of results because you don't want to set alarm bells off. Um, so what we do, you have to have that balance of using the best test you can, understanding there may be a small chance of a false positive or false negative on occasion, but that in the essence of time and to support industry in the best way possible, you weigh that up and say, well, it's better to have a slight false positive that it, you know, and you can react on and contain and quarantine, etc., but then back it up with a test that comes in behind and says, well, you're absolutely right or actually you've missed. So it's, it's a balance. Um, and the skill is having the best test you can and the interpretation so that the call is as accurate as you can get each time. That's Simone Warner, Director for Microbial Science and Pests and Diseases at AgriBio. Uh, one more rainfall text through from Bakes. Spread 10 tonnes of urea yesterday. It's raining very nice now. The goats should have plenty of feed. Very good to hear. Some good timing indeed. It's uh, 10 to 1 here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. My name's Nikolai Bailharts. Now, with the ongoing drought crisis, uh, of course, is a huge demand for hay. We've been talking about this a bit over the last little while. Uh, Many hay producers have been hit with a huge influx of orders amidst growing demand. Now, this list is so long already that some hay growers from North Queensland are having to turn away new customers, some from as far away as Albury, who say they're in increasingly desperate need for feed. David Chen met with Huendon-based hay producer Jeff Reid to speak about the situation and find out what he's been doing to try and turn off more of the badly needed product for the livestock sector. At the moment, we're just starting to cut and uh, start producing out of winter. We've had a quite dormant time over the last month in the winter time, where it sort of doesn't grow much. So, we're encouraging it to try and get out of the ground because we've got nil stock in the shed at the moment and people waiting on orders. So, we're actually cutting grass shorter than we'd normally like to just to try and start the ball rolling. And just tell us about the orders that you're getting, or the people calling up asking, just uh, how much is that demand there? There's a lot of demand at the moment. One thing that happened to us this year, we didn't come into the year with much stock in the shed because the wet season didn't come till very late and people were panicking and sort of bought the stock that we had and then it's the rain came very late, which didn't give us a big sort of free crop off the wet season, if you want another word for it. And then um, the winter came along and we've got milked out of what we had, so we're starting from scratch with empty sheds, which is normally not the way to go because... A lot of the demand here is in the winter time. People process and muck around with cattle in the winter, so it's nearly back to front. You produce in the summer time, and 
the demand for the haze in the winter time. So we've got caught short with no stock and um, yeah we're limping by trying to people on a list waiting to get their hay sort of thing and other people ringing up wanting to go on the list and other people that ring up and new customers and I just say oh sorry I can't help you for months so they go looking elsewhere. You're getting people as far as Albury ringing up? Yeah I've had a couple of strange ones, one from Albury, one from Cunnamulla, we had a couple from the Territory but the problem is I don't want to take on any new customers and the freight components just once I explain to them well they ask me all the questions and the economics just cancel it out. There's just certain distance you can cart it without just costing too much money. And I guess people within the district, I mean, what are you telling them about their supply? Yeah, well, I try to look after the locals that have looked after me for the last 20 years, so they always sort of sneak their way up the list quicker than the people from further afield. But they know the situation, and they, they've sort of got a bit more switched on that they ring me up and say, I want to buy a load of hay in, in June or something, and, and they might do that in March. And I've got them pencilled in that, you know, we know what's going on sort of thing. But, um, yeah, a lot of people do that, and a lot of people are unorganised, just ring up and say the cattle in the yard, I want a load of hay tomorrow. And <laughs> most of the time it's good. You can just say, right, I'll send the truck. But this year it's not like that. And, Jeff, the fact that we're looking at your green green fields at the moment, it's possible due to irrigation, and uh, you're looking at some studies to uh, promote more irrigation in, in the district. Uh, just tell us about that. Yeah, we're on a thing. We're trying to get some dams built, but, uh, yeah, the political will is, I don't know, we're just... We're going down the pathway to see what we can encourage, but um, yeah, sometimes the political masters have different ideas to what the people on the ground, but this time round we were just trying to drive it from the ground level to try and see what we could create, but yeah, it's a long road to hoe and it's not public yet what's going on, so we'll just keep that under my hat. <laughs> people say, what are you trying to encourage more irrigation for? You've got one and you're bringing in your uh, own competitors, but to me it would be better for the district and the town like one time there was probably someone standing at Emerald and thinking, oh, we better not build a dam here, we've got a hay farm here, so... But look at Emerald now, you know, it's a city, so... I'm just hoping the same thing can happen for the Hewnan district one day, that if we can get progress to happen, everyone benefits. I mean, irrigation in the Flint district, district has been talked about for a very long time. I mean, is there anything different this time around, do you think, when you're going into these studies and looking at what you can do? I think one of the major differences in the past a lot of this stuff's been driven from the top down and people on the ground such as me have just known about it after the report's been handed down and we can shoot holes in it from the very start. So we're this time round we're driving it from the bottom up and uh, we're trying to steer the report's directions. We know there's some stuff out there that's absolutely fanciful so we keep away from that. We just concentrate on what's practical. But yeah, there's possibilities around. New things have come along. The goalposts have been shifted on us, like trees now are God. You can't even go near a development that involves hurting trees, so that's had to steer it away. And things like the barrier reef and the catchment, and, you know, the, we've got issues that are around now that weren't around before, so we're trying to navigate through all that, and hopefully we can find a, a suitable spot and a suitable water supply and a suitable irrigation setup that maybe the whole district can benefit from. Jeff Reed from Queensland speaking with David Chen. Let's jump across to horticulture now and a fifth generation orchardist from near Shepparton is the new chair of Fruit Growers Victoria. Mitchell McNabb from Ardmona is replacing Gary Godwell who spent four years in the top job. Mitchell McNabb says he's taking on the role with plenty of ideas to try and take the industry forward. 
I think the biggest issues that growers are facing currently is that we're predominantly in oversupply markets. Obviously, prices have deflated and we need to address these sorts of issues with retailers uh, as well and, and obviously trying to increase consumption on a domestic market and also further explore any uh, export opportunities that might present themselves to try and sell the fruit away from the domestic market and uh, hopefully try and increase our returns for growers where we can. And Mitchell, what is your background and what about this job appeal to you? So I'm a fifth generation fruit grower. Our family's been growing fruit in Ardmona for over 110 years and I've come in uh, managing our orchard and I've learnt, you know, these skills from my father and I think along the way I've also done quite a few different industry uh, group research uh, tours overseas and I've uh, also completed a, a Nuffield scholarship on robotics and how we can apply it into apple and pear production and packing. So I guess I've had a bit of experience in around trying to bring some technology and innovation into the industry and, and uh, into our business and, and how we can try and uh, reduce our cost of production and uh, make our businesses more profitable. Are you out in the orchard at the moment? Yes. So you've obviously got a great knowledge of the Goulburn Valley, but do you have a similar understanding of fruit growers elsewhere in Victoria? Yes. No, I think I think generally most of the issues are, are, are reasonably broad across most areas around Victoria, but... Um, Obviously, in the Golden Valley, we've got a large concentration of um, pear growers. About 80% of the, the country's uh, pears are grown here in Northern Victoria, and a lot of the issues of oversupply at the moment are, are drastically affecting uh, a lot of growers around the area, and we've got to try and address that and find ways to increase consumption and, and also uh, whether it means uh, having to remove some varieties of pears that are best suited to canning that as there has been a decrease in canning over the last sort of five to ten years. If we can try and remove uh, the canning varieties off the fresh fruit market, that is going to help uh, strengthen uh, the price for fresh fruit growers. What do you think the role of fruit growers Victoria is? I think the main role is to support growers, whether it be from something as simple as different education and training programs. We have the Emerging Leaders Fruit Growers Group, which is trying to edu- educate and train uh, some younger growers in the industry and, and you know, push them and develop their skill sets and right through to these different orchard walks we have to, I guess, showcase different skills and growing techniques and all, all these things that's going to help better inform our growers and help instill the right skill sets into them. You know, we need to be a, a front for the industry to try and help give Victorian growers the, the best representation we can, whether it be with state government stakeholders or federal if need be, but I think it's just more about trying to support our growers and ensure that they uh, have the skills and technology and ability to grow the best fruit they can. That's new uh, chair of Fruit Growers Victoria, Mitchell McNabb from Ardmona, speaking with Megan Ruth. One more rainfall text through two and a half millimetres, still raining, no wind near Maryborough. Excellent. Very good to hear. Now let's find out what's coming up on Statewide Drive. Good afternoon, Nicole Trustee. Hello, Nick. How are you doing? Good, good. The father of a 17-year-old regional footballer uh, demanding answers today after his son had his jaw broken by a player who was an armed robbery inmate who was on parole. We'll have a chat to that father this afternoon. A Gunnawari farmer is offering her property for free to help drought-stricken farmers from New South Wales. She says that she will pay to transport their animals to Victoria and care for them for nothing. Oh, wow, that's yeah. lovely. We're going to have a chat to her. And also, comedian Dave O'Neill joins us. He says he misses phones with cords attached to them. And we want to know what was better back in the day. 
Uh, well, I feel like the, this is very broad, but I feel like the quality of things. I feel like yeah. things are just a bit cheaper and a bit they break a bit easier, and mm. you know, it's it, yeah. It's, I feel like things were made a bit better everything back, back in the day. Everything's got built in. What's that expression? Yeah, like a like a built-in end of life kind of. <laughs> planned obsolescence is what planned it's obsolescence. There we go. It took State me a statewide drive at three. Thank you very much, Nicole Travestic. That's the country hour for today and the week. It's time for the news now. It is one o'clock.